0: 14, so we're actually turning the page. Can you believe it? After all that time on in, in page 811 in our church Bibles, we're actually going to turn the page. Okay. Okay, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 10. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are you trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we have spoken to You in prayer. We have praised You in our song. And now we come to the much-needed moment that we would hear from You, from Your Word, as it is preached. So we ask that you would help us now, as we turn to the Bible, that our minds would be stirred to think, that our hearts would be open to obey, distractions removed, and our wills be ready to bend gladly in devotion to you, the living God. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this whole section that began in chapter 8 and will end in the first verse of chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians is Paul's warning about the dangers inherent in Christian freedom or liberty. And immediately, living in the United States, we might not make the connection between freedom and danger, but in actual fact, there are dangers that are attached to freedoms. Think with me for a minute you're sensible people. Every parent who's had the privilege of giving their teens the keys to their car for the first time ever, saying to their teens, you're now free to take the car, you pass the test, now have a good time, they know that there are dangers inherent in that freedom. Equally, there are dangers when we have been given more time in our hands and certainly more dollars in our pockets. Idle hands are still the devil's workshop full pockets may turn us to freedoms which disregard or reduce in rank our Christian duty. There are dangers inherent in freedom. And if that is true in practical matters, then it's equally true then in spiritual matters. So in chapter 10, Paul, excuse me, addresses three dangers inherent in Christian freedom. Last week, we learned of the dangers of presuming upon the Christian's eternal security with God. The the danger of behaving as if God's grace in Jesus is a free pass to do whatever we like or ignore whatever God has told us plainly to do or not to do from his word, uh, particularly in the area of personal evangelism, as we've been discovering in those past weeks. In a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to learn of the dangers of legalism, which is oftentimes a reaction to genuine Christian freedom. But this morning in verses 14 to 22, Paul sets himself to the task of warning the Christians of the dangers of compromise. And if we're in any doubt about the application of these verses, Paul, in typical straightforward language, says in verse 21, this is our key verse, you cannot be a guest at the Lord's table and a guest at the table of demons. And what that means and why it matters is what we're going to spend our time on this morning. But if you miss everything else, we must realize idolatry which we're told in verse 14 to flee from. You see there, if your Bible's open, and I would hope that your Bible's open right now, idolatry, including a God we might fashion in our minds that bends to our own wills, idolatry is not meaningless. It is not a, oops, my bad. Idolatry is positively evil. Demons, Paul says, are involved in adultery. Therefore, Paul straightforwardly says, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it all. You can't have a Sunday kind of posture and a Monday through Saturday kind of posture. Obviously, then, some of the Christians in Corinth were taking their Christian freedoms in questionable matters a bit too far. And it is always in the questionable matters where we need the most clarity. Some in the church were pushing the limits of their freedom. Some, if you, were, if you would, were straddling the fence. So the flavor of Paul's instruction is something like the words of James in James 3. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So James would say, if we're sitting at the table of cursers during the week, and then at the table of Christ on Sunday, there's a problem. Especially if we're doing some of the cursing ourselves. Curse and praise does not fit the mouth of a saint. If we're sitting at the table of a gossiper or slanderer during the week, and then coming to the table of Christ on Sunday. There's a problem, again, especially if we are doing some of the slandering and the gossiping. Jesus, in similar fashion, said it like this. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve serve two masters. You can't have it all. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, you can't straddle the fence, says Jesus. You cannot bow to Jesus on a Sunday and bow to your bank accounts on a Monday through Saturday. Lastly, and probably leastly, but if that's even a word, Bob Dylan said it perfectly. In fact, Bob Dylan must have read his Bible. You're going to have to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. It might be the devil, or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. In other words, you, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it all. You're testing God. You're dabbling with demons, which is Paul's argument, and that ought never to be. So let's get right to it, verse 15, first word, four words this morning, first word is think, think, and you see it there uh, beginning in verse 15, I'm speaking to sensible people. Judge, think this through you for yourself. And if preaching above people's head is bad, not preaching to their heads is just as worse because the worst kind of preaching is the kind of preaching that doesn't make anyone think. You see, the only way our hearts will be changed and our wills will be stirred in any kind of lasting way is as a result of our minds being fueled. One of the great burdens I would suggest to you in our age is the Christian who needs to feel things more than they need to think things through, right? Well, Joe, you don't like to feel. I love to feel. Yesterday, I was listening to some music, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Phantom of the Opera soundtrack on iTunes radio. There's a lovely song, All I Ask of You. And when I hear that song, I was feeling it. In fact, I was curled up like a baby, almost crying. Right? Beautiful song. You should Google it. Not now, but later on. So Paul, after calling them dear friends, in verse 14, writes, verse 15, You are able-minded people. You're going to have to think this one with me. Judge for yourselves. And by the way, that could be kind of a dig too because the one thing we know about the Corinthian church, they were super terrific at judging other people. They were judging Paul. They were judging Cephas. They were judging each other. Maybe then this is kind of irony on Paul's part. I'm not sure. Again, you're sensible people. I want you to think that one through for yourself. Paul then is asking the church, think and see if what I'm saying is, be true. Now, loved ones, the weight of what is being said, the weight of what we are doing now must ring true in our lives. And if that is going to happen, then when you come to a setting like this, you don't turn off your brains. You don't sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. You think. Sometimes it might help you to have a paper and a pencil out. I've always made my kids take notes when I've preached. For years they've done it. They got better and better as the years went by. Have your Bibles open, you're sensible people. Judge for yourselves. Because you'll never know and apply unless you listen. And you'll never listen unless you think. And you will never think unless you intend to think. And don't let anyone think for you. And put your belief system on trial in your mind as the Bible's being taught verse by verse. Again, put your belief system on trial in your mind as the Bible's being taught verse by verse so that both the preacher and the listener are sitting under the authority of the Scripture Sunday by Sunday, and then hopefully as the week goes forward to that same end. Because the way we walk into instruction like this will by and large determine the way we walk out of instruction like this. And you and I need this instruction and loved ones, we need it more than a couple of days or a couple of, a couple of uh, weeks or Sundays a month. The powers of hell would love you to be every other place but a place like this on a Sunday morning. First point, think. Second point, answer. Answer because Paul puts forward some questions, two questions. And what he's going to do, he's going to build his case concerning the danger of compromise. Compromise. Question number one is pretty simple. It is not the cup of thanksgiving, right? This is verse 16. It is not the cup of thanksgiving, and that cup had its roots in Hebrew Passover meal, the cup of thanksgiving, which was the third cup drink on that final evening when Jesus ate with his disciples. So Jesus turned the Passover, if you would, to the Lord's Supper. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, says Paul, isn't that a participation in the blood of Christ? Now, the key word that is used here four other times in this section, uh, verse 21, part or take a part in, is a very, very important word. The word there is participation. It actually means fellowship. So in this, when the Corinthian church share in communion, they are dealing with something that is far beyond the routine words and actions. And that's equally true of us here. Communion is not a meaningless ritual. Real things are taking place when we take communion. For example, Paul will warn the church in chapter 11, verse 27 of 1 Corinthians. If they or anyone approaches communion improperly, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, do it wrong and something happens. And if people are not thinking, and so they approach communion in a kind of, well, it doesn't matter where I take it or how I take it, I just need to take it then all that judgment talk will sound like you know, outdated crazy talk from the dark ages. Because after all, the person says, it's just something that I do. It's symbolic. It's external. No way, says Paul. No way. It is participation. It is koinonia. It is fellowship. We are communing with Christ himself. We are communing with other Christians. Because authentic Christian fellowship, now listen carefully. Authentic Christian fellowship is far, far beyond just hanging out together. It's far, far beyond that. Something spiritual happens, which Paul is acknowledging in our participation in communion. So that when we meet with Christ and his people in this way, he ordained that men and women will either participate, commune with Christ, and experience the benefits of his shed blood, or we do it wrongly, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves, which means there's no neutral ground here. There's no, well, it really doesn't matter. It does matter. So then when we understand this, the communion table all of a sudden is amplified in its its kind of implications. So when we take communion monthly as a church, as our pattern, it cannot be as a reaction to those who take communion weekly. I spent a long time in a church that took communion weekly. It was, it was fine. It was okay. It didn't lose any of the meaning for me at all. When we take to the table, this is great. We get to redo the gospel all over in our mind. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, right? My sin. Unless you're presumptuous and you're like, you've had a great week. My sin, not the part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. You forgive me, but that's one of the reasons the one hymn that we taught our kids to memorize was the second, was uh, before the throne of God above, second verse, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and reminds me of the guilt within, some of which is True. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died. And that is the participation. That is communion. That's taking place with Christ and his people. Jesus is actually participating with us. So it's not only vertical between us and Christ, it's horizontal between believers and believers. If you want to become better brothers and sisters to each other, Thoughtful communion is part of the help. I bet that's the first time that some of us ever heard anything like that. Communion is part of the expression of being part in the body of Christ. Communion says, okay, there's a certain time we've got to meet and everybody's got to adjust so that we can meet together to take communion as opposed to, well, if it fits my schedule and if it it's your schedule, then okay, let's do this. No. The person next to you the person behind you, they might be completely different than you in most every way. They may have different lines of living, they have different lines of reasoning than you do. However, when we participate together in communion, we enjoy the benefits of the blood of Christ, the benefits of his death, the the benefits of his resurrection, the benefits which are equal for every sinner who's a saint. Because as you know, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, right? communion reminds me that there's no distinction with each other when it comes to our sin. Uh, There's no A group sinners, and they're like really, really bad, and then there's group B sinners, and they're just not as worse. What does James say? You break one sin, you've broken them all. In other words, we're all in the same group. So Paul, I think, would say, so so zip it (laughs) and take communion. And once we realize this, not only then is our understanding of how tight our unity is with each other, but we marvel that that people like me can have a real, not a pretend, a real union with the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't misunderstand Paul. Paul is not saying Christ is present in the cup and he, he, in a moment, present in the bread. He's just saying that Christ is present. Christ is present at the table in a unique and unrepeatable way, which can't be duplicated any other way than the way that it's done. Lord willing, next week. And as we participate with our minds, our minds then begin to flood. Jesus Christ has victory over my sin. We remember how amazing grace is. Uh, Christ became flesh and dwelt among us, died my death on the cross. We remember that I am God's child, and so are they, and so are they. Therefore, Paul would say, get involved in your mind. This is a moment that matters. And, you know, 19 years of pastoral ministry tells me this. When something really, really bad happens to us, and something really, really sad happens to us, as it will happen to all of us, Having communion in a consistent way with Christ protects us from unhealthy, excessive despair or absolute hopelessness, right? Absolute hopelessness, as if Christ's victory over death doesn't really matter. No, we remember the cross. We remember what it means, what it won, what it provides and and, and what it promises that we will join in the feast of heaven around the table of the king. That's what the table is telling us, guaranteed. Now, if you think about that, And that doesn't stir your heart. There might be something wrong. And if we keep skipping over communion feedings, when those dark days come, you will be, as it were, malnourished. And those days, I guarantee you, will be much more confusing. They'll be much more difficult to think Christian about your situation and to rest in your Redeemer's love. That's question number one. Question number two continues to kind of further underpin his application that we're going to get to in verse 21, verse 16b. And is not the bread we break a participation in the body of Christ? Now, Paul's words here are more than likely a part of an actual practice which took place in the early church. The bread is a loaf. There's a wholeness that is purposeful here, and it's being expressed in communion. When the one loaf is broken, it is touched by common hands. Pay attention to that. And then other common hands pull from the same loaf to take a piece. Everyone is participating in the same loaf, the body of Christ. Again, Christ is not the bread, but we're fellowshipping with Christ when we take the bread. Subsequently, then, your sensible people think this through. When in church history, biblical theology was tossed aside and was replaced by superstition, At that point, then, in history, the average person in the pew could no longer touch the bread. Which is why a Roman Catholic priest will place the bread in the mouth of those participating. Because theology was tossed aside and superstition won the day and the bread was so holy that only one holy guy could touch it. Not so, says the Bible. The very first table everybody got to touch the bread they shared it they pulled from it they commune correctly then in light of it because they participated together with it that's the second question now when we have the opportunity to take uh, lord willing communion together next week it will mean nothing but judgment if you haven't tasted the bread of life himself jesus christ in other words if you receive communion and you're not a christian you're just doing nothing but drinking judgment to yourself if you haven't acknowledged your sin before God, if you haven't acknowledged your helpless state apart from the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, substituting our wretchedness with Christ's perfectness, if you don't know that, if you can't say that, or if you don't even know what that means, A, you should become a Christian today. Talk with me after we're done. B, you shouldn't take communion because communion is serious business. But if you're a Christian then when you come to the table and you know the Lord, it is spiritual participation with none other than Jesus Christ himself. Okay? We participate vertically with Christ. We are participating horizontally with each other. And we're expressing, and here's the key, that we are all in this together. You're my sister. You're my brother because Jesus has done it by his grace. By his grace. Look at verse 17, please, if your Bible's open. There's one loaf. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf, and we can add together. Point one, think. Point two, answer. Point three, consider. So Paul, having asked them to think in verse 15, he asked two questions. He gave an explanation. He's going to do the same thing you'll notice in verse 18. He's made it clear that communion, there is a spiritual connection happening, there is a participation with Christ, it is deliberate, it is real, and it matters. He goes on, verse 18, consider the people of Israel. So the people of Israel had a sacrificial system which centered at the great altar in the temple of Jerusalem. The sacrifice which was done was one in which everyone was involved. They were involved in the offering, they were involved with the worship of God, and they were involved with each other. So he asked them, again, think, verse 18b, excuse me, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Again, the idea of participating is placed before the readers. So this is is much more than a group of nice people having having a nice meal together. This is heart-level exercise of faith and commitment with spiritual implications and spiritual dimensions. So when the Israelites ate the sacrifice, they were participating in the altar. In other words, they were sharing with everything that altar stood for. They were communing, communing with each other. And they were communing with the God whom the altar represented. Some of you might remember way back in 1993 a religious group in Hialeah, Florida, or maybe more recently, 2009, another religious group in Euless, Texas. Interesting that that I worshipped in Hialeah, Florida when I was a little kid and actually went to church in Euless, Texas also. But anyway, there were a group of religious people who were involved in animal sacrifice. And so the Supreme Court set down a judgment concerning the use of animal sacrifices in their worship. These people in in these groups were interviewed. And in both cases... It was very, very clear. They knew what they were doing and why they were doing it. They said, we are communion, quote, we are communing with our God. We are expressing who we are and what we are and what we believe when we do this. Which is why Paul said about Israel, their identification and association with God was declared by the fact of their participation in the meal. And of course, the same is true for the Christians. Now, okay, thank you for walking with me through that. Now comes the meat of Paul's argument. So in his question then in verse 19, Paul anticipates what's called a false deduction. That's what it is. That's why I have to say it. Meaning, some might be thinking that because these festivals for idols actually happen, then the God that is being honored is actually real. So Paul asked the question. It's a great question. Paul would have been a great lawyer. He frames the question before he answers it. We should do that. Frame the question before you answer it. Verse 19, he says, do I mean then that the food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? In other words, are there really other gods? Are there really idols? Is that what you're saying, Paul? When we go to those pagan temples to eat, because you said it's true for Israel and you said it's true for us. Okay, so when we go to those other pagan temples to eat, is another God actually there? Because Paul, you're really concerned about idolatry. You say this is real and you keep driving home this participation point to us. Okay, but he already told them in chapter 8, verse 4, there is no God but one. Therefore, what Paul is asking them in verse 19 is, am I implying that another God really exists? And again, Paul is asking them once again to think this through, right? This isn't three cute little stories, the few bits of Bible, because people like stories better than the Bible. Now, that hurts people over the long run. Not to think in a context like this, that's the stuff of cults. Paul's answer then to them, verse 20, first word is what? No. No, an idol is no God at all. Now, the issue for this church was that some in the church were participating in pagan feasts. And so it's not since there's only one God, these pagan feasts means nothing at all. No, they they do mean something. Idols are dead. They're just statues cut from wood or formed out of metal. But those idols, why, why not being deity, Paul says, verse 20, are demons. Okay? Any worship other than Christian worship is demonic. Now, I want you to be staying with me. The idol's dead, it's wood to be burned, it's metal to be reused, it is a thought to be replaced. We might not have statues, but we do have thoughts. An idol's dead, wood to be burned, metal to be reused, a thought to be replaced. However, behind all idols, whether statues or the idols of our minds or the idols which are presented to us in 21st century culture, behind all idols are the forces more significant than a God who doesn't exist. What is that force? It is a demonic force, says Paul. Now, loved ones, this is basic Christian doctrine. The Bible teaches there are legions of demons, fallen angels who bow to the rule of Satan. Their total existence is is destroying if they could or hindering if they might the work of God and the progress of His church. That's why they do what they do. And God says, through Paul, these demons are the force behind all forms of idolatry, behind all wrong thoughts about God, which is what idolatry is. Now, are you with me? Therefore, and listen very carefully, all worship of any kind, that is set up without the intention of worshiping the the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. All worship that doesn't have as its framework the gospel truth. Although the person may not consciously be doing this, nevertheless, behind all of this is the worship of demons. When we said last week our idols are stuff of our daydreams, when we said our idols are things which a person cares about having, increasing, or keeping and can't stand to lose, when we said all that, behind all of it, if we have it, is the dark forces of hell Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Sikhism, and Judaism, five of the largest religions in the world, billions of participants with all their mystery and their pageantry, even in the sincerity that they might have behind all of that, the Bible is prepared to say, is the powers of hell. It is demonic. All worship does, does, does not center on the triune God, does not center on the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The only hope for the sinner. All worship that does not have that as its framework is demonic. Listen carefully. Think this through for yourself. If people get together in a place like this simply because they like seeing each other, if that's like the big deal, if people come together and the only reason, only, only reason why they want to get into a session like this because the guy behind the box is telling everybody just about every week how bad the government is and how Christians are losing their rights and then the next week is the same thing in reverse if that's why they're getting together, if their worship is not centered on the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and the substitutionary work of Jesus Christ, then the Bible is prepared to tell us it's demonic. So, so, so there are only two sources from which things come from. They are coming from Christ and is marked by truth, or they come from Satan And it is marked by lies. So one's sincerity in these things is not the issue. No matter how nice or moral the person may seem, that is not the issue. No matter matter how religious the building appears or profound their movements in worship are, the issue is whether or not they know it or not, if they have less than the gospel as their framework in their worship, then Paul says it is demonic Activity Again, if it's less than the gospel truth that frames their worship, if they're not relying on the death of Jesus Christ as their entryway into God's throne, that is demonic activity. And how foolish it would be if we put ourselves in a setting of worship where that wouldn't be the case. Well, the guy has a Bible, the guy mentions the Bible every once in a while, and he seems really nice, and it makes me feel good when I'm there, loved one, Satan is glad to send one of his minions to show up to those places of worship, because when the people come together, they do encounter something, they do not encounter a vacuum, they encounter a spiritual energy, it is demonic They feel something. They sense something. What is it? Well, it's only one thing it is demonic. Behind the unreality of idols, there exists the reality of demons. So, from time to time, when you read the reports of a statue uh, weeping blood, right? Tears of blood, it is either a religious charlatan, a la Steve Martin in that clever little movie, Leap of Faith. Or it's a force. It's either fake or it's a force. And if it is a force, then it's demonic. I came across an interview this week of one of the wealthiest businesswomen on this planet. The question came to her. To what do you attribute to your success? She said, first, the encouragement of my husband. I was like, oh, I need to do a better job encouraging my wife. Okay, got that. Second, my psychic. This is what she says. There's something beyond me, a force, and it told me not to start selling clothes first, but perfume. And it was right. And here I am. Look at me. You know what she needed? She needed a friend to come up alongside her, open the Bible, 1 Timothy 6, Godliness is not a means to financial gain. You had nothing coming into the world, you'll take nothing going out of this world. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, they forgot the gospel. They wandered away from gospel privileges and gospel responsibilities. And then Paul says, pain is coming. See, if that lady, that precious woman, if she, she has a thirst... She has a thirst for something, that's fine, that's normal, but only Jesus can fill that first thirst. And if she doesn't have Jesus to fill that thirst, then she's going to be thirsty for all eternity. Now, listen, the Christian doesn't fear all this stuff. We fight this stuff on our knees, we fight this stuff with the full armor of God, the Holy Spirit's power active in our minds. We know it's not a flesh and blood battle. It is a spiritual battle. It's a battle Christ Jesus has already won. Satan is in a constant state of, of check, checkmate. He just keeps moving the piece around the board. So says Paul, verse 20. The sacrifices of the pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participating in demons. Because, verse 21, you can't have it both ways. You can't have it all. Think, answer, consider, finally then don't so either the church was naive and now they know or they were presumptuous and they thought they knew better if they were doing this purposely paul says essentially don't verse 22 don't arouse the lord's jealousy are you trying to get a reaction from god The jealousy of God is not the imperfection that's attached to human jealousy. The jealousy of God is is a jealousy of a man having been uh, jealous for the purity and the protection of his wife. Don't you look at her that way. This is the jealousy of a mother for her child. No one else can have the child. I'm going to care for the child. It is my child. Don't try to draw a reaction from God final question then is an argument from absurdity verse 22 are you stronger than God do you, do you actually think you can play it both ways are you trying to outsmart God are you going to get away with this no yeah they might have a few decade run but ultimately they're not going to get away with it so let me conclude here with a few final minutes just a few applications number one Loved ones, let us check our own lives for the compromises we might be making. Let's check out our Friday nights, our Tuesday mornings, our lines of thought. Let's see if we're actually sitting in two tables. And let's be prepared to listen to Paul and pray for the grace to know that we can't have it both ways. Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It's either going to be the Lord or Satan. You got to serve somebody. When we come in and sing holy, holy, holy on a Sunday and then compromise and morality and with our mouths uh, the rest of the week, can't do that. You can't do that. Second, communion matters, doesn't it? It matters for the Christian. And that's why millions of people might come to a table like ours and not have any any lasting change and having no reality in their mind because they come to the table not united to christ they come to the table to try to win or earn grace and they do nothing but eat and drink judgment on themselves finally and think this one through for yourself when men and women worship themselves when they worship other things they open themselves up to the delusions of the powers of hell when we go to our kitchen table and seek to plan out our lives, when the dominant issue of that table is us, then we lose the weight of the one table that really matters. And then that is idol worship. And more than likely, that is being fueled by real and personal demonic attacks those of you who trust your inclinations, trust your heart urgings better than the Bible, better be careful. The Bible has always been 100% right. Your inclinations have not. Think it out. You can't have it all. And you can't have it both ways. I love you. God bless you. Let's pray together. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for you, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Father, the simplicity of the gospel confronts a confusing, chaotic world. And we thank you That the gospel is clean, it is clear, and it is one. Christ came into this world to save sinners. And we thank you, Father, for that truth. And may it radiate in our minds. And let it change our behavior. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours this morning. Only through Jesus Christ. Amen.